Have you ever been a part of a remodeling project and it became much bigger than you initially anticipated? During my time in seminary, my day job was supervising maintenance for an apartment complex. And most of the apartments were built in the 1960s. So that meant that I was constantly updating and remodeling units. Now, if you know anything about remodeling, you know that it's never as easy as you think it'll be. Often what you hope would, would be a simple swap of the old with the new becomes a much bigger project. More often than not for us, we would begin a bathroom remodel by removing things like the bathroom vanity only to find water damage behind it. And now you're poking around on the wall to see how far it goes and inevitably now the whole wall has to be replaced. Well, when you opened up the wall, now you see the plumbing that's been there since the 1960s and that two-inch cast iron pipe is probably only one inch on the inside. And now you're forced with the decision, yes, I've got to replace all of this. Well, that's what it's like in Israel right now in the book of 1 Samuel. The nation of Israel overlaps with the end of the book of Judges that tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Rather than doing what's right in God's sight, the people were ignoring God and they were making a wreck of their community in sin and selfishness. Israel in this day was in need of major renovation and spiritual renewal. But as we will see, when the walls are opened up, two things are clear. First, the issues are deeper than just the people. It just keeps getting deeper as we look. The priests and the prophets are rotten or absent altogether. That means there is an issue with the foundation of Israel. Prophets and priests are supposed to lead in the worship of God. And the second thing we'll see, God will address these deep issues needing renovation and renewal. Now, as we look at Israel and the remodeling project that it is, I want to ask you to look at your own heart, your own life. If the walls around your heart were opened, would there be any issues found in there? If so, how deep do those issues go in your heart? What do you think is needed to address the issues of your heart? This morning, we're going to, we're going to see how God works in the midst of the people of Israel. And the way he works in Israel is the same way he works in the lives of people today. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And as you do that, go ahead and grab your sermon outline from the bulletin. I think it'll be helpful as we navigate this passage together. Today we're going to see a faithful priest provided in chapter 2. Next we're going to see a faithful prophet provided in chapter 3. And then third, we'll look at a greater priest and prophet provided for us. So look with me at 1 Samuel 2, 11 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 
Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the men who were sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now to give you a little bit of background to the book, so far in 1 Samuel, there has been a barren woman named Hannah who desperately wants to bear a son. Hannah vows that if God will give her a son, she'll offer that son to serve the Lord with the priests. Through the blessing of Eli the priest, Hannah conceives and bears a son, and they name him Samuel. After Samuel is weaned, his parents Elkanah and Hannah entrust their miraculous son to Eli and Shiloh. And now they're returning home to Ramah, as verse 11 tells us. Now this miraculous son is being contrasted with the worthless sons of Eli. Why are they worthless? Well, the text says, they do not know the Lord. When you see that the priests of God do not know God, you should know that's a huge problem. Because what do priests do? They represent sinful people to a holy God. They stand in the middle, being ritually sanctified and by offering sacrifices a certain way on behalf of people to God. Their job is to mediate between people and God on God's terms. Yet these priests do not know the Lord. So the issue goes deeper than just the people. Even the priests are corrupt. And these sons show their worthlessness in how they act. Verses 12 through 17 teach us that they are treating the sacrifices with contempt. They're despising them. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have complete disregard for how God's word says sacrifices are to be treated. The biblical custom was that the priests were to offer sacrifices in a very specific and reverential way. And then from the animal sacrifice, both the people and the priests are apportioned some of the meat to eat. But Eli's sons have a sinful custom, as we see in verse 13, of taking more than God's provision for them. They would come. They would have their servants come and claim more meat for the priests by taking a big fork and grabbing out large pieces of meat. This sin is both deliberately against God's word and it denied the worshipers their portion of the meat. What's more, verse 15 through 17 teaches that the priests would steal other prime cuts of meat and that they wouldn't even perform the ritual sacrifices in the right order. We learn from Leviticus chapter 7 that the priest is to burn the fat of the animal on the altar And then after the sacrifice, eat of it in a holy place. This order was to represent honoring God first, then partaking of God's provisions. But these priests completely disregard the sacrifice. These worthless men are only out to rob the people for their own bellies. And even when an Israelite was bold enough to stand up to their priest, these priests threatened to take the meat By force. Rather than the temple of the Lord being a house of prayer and worship, these wicked and worthless men have turned the temple of the Lord into a den of robbers. 
but we see that the sin goes even deeper. Jump down with me to verses 22 through 25. It starts in 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Here we learn that not only are they, the sons, treating the sacrifices with contempt, they're committing sexual immorality with the women who also serve at the place of worship. They are treating the temple of the Lord like a pagan temple with cult prostitutes. The sons of Eli embody the words of Jesus. These people honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And the gossip is spreading all throughout Israel, which now means that Eli is culpable for their sins. We learn in 1 Samuel 4.18 that Eli was the judge in those days. He had the authority to remove them from their priestly office. But rather than removing them, he half-heartedly rebukes his sons in verse 25. But we see that the sons don't listen to their father. Now, in their refusal, we need to see something else. Look with me at verse 25. It ends by saying, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. This is a lot like the book of Exodus with Pharaoh in Egypt. Do you remember that story? Pharaoh hardened his heart to God, and God confirms his rejection by hardening Pharaoh in that rebellion. So also Hophni and Phinehas have rejected God, and God hardens them in their rebellion, and he wills their refusal to repent, and he wills their impending judgment. Now, as we read of the hardening of these sons, you and I should not gloss over it quickly. We should be sobered and want to repent of sin while there's still a chance. We learn in 2 Corinthians from Paul that now is the day of salvation. Not later, now. Let's be people who do not let the sun go down on our sin, but rather deals with them as soon as we are aware of them lest we become calloused and hardened in our sin. As we look at Israel, things are really bad. When there is language concerning the priests that remind you of the hardening of Pharaoh, things are really bad for God's people. As the walls are opened up, the issue is deeper than just unfaithful people doing what's right in their own eyes. The priests are more profane than the people. So how does God respond when the walls of Israel are opened up? Jump back up to me with me to 2, 18 and 19. It says there, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now these simple verses are very significant to the story. 
The boy Samuel is ministering before the Lord. And what is he wearing? He's wearing a linen ephod. Samuel's wearing the priestly ephod, which is a garment worn as a priest represents the people of God to Israel. That ephod in Aaron's day had 12 stones on it for the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priest would wear it before God as the sins of the people were dealt with. So as Samuel wears a linen ephod, we see that God is not abandoning his people. In the midst of these abominations, there's a new priest in town. Though Samuel is not of the Levitical lineage, we see God working through a new priest. In the spiritual barrenness of Israel, God is visiting his people. And he responds by providing a faithful priest. So though we see, A, a priest, that the priests are more profane than the people, we also see, B, that God makes Samuel, a miraculous son, to be a faithful priest. Now, I want you to also see the blessing of God foreshadowed in Hannah's life. I believe this is a picture of what God is doing in Israel. Though barren for years before the birth of Samuel, look with me at verse 21. It says there, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. In the midst of barrenness and brokenness, God responds by working out his sovereign plan of blessing. And he pictures it in the life of Hannah. And he shows us that this is going to soon be in the life of Israel. Now, there's one more thing to notice about God's response to these deep sin issues. God's word, his inspired word here in chapter 2, intentionally goes back and forth between Samuel and Eli's sons. Did you notice that as we read? In 2.11, we see Samuel ministering to the Lord. But then in verses 12 through 17, we see the sins of Eli's sons. We jump back in 2.18 to 21, and we learn about Samuel serving the Lord. And then we go in 22 through 25 to the sins of Eli and his sons. But then we end in verse 26 with seeing Samuel, who's continuing to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. I want you to know that this back and forth contrast is meant to indicate that God is at work in the midst of this mess to foster hope for us. There is always hope for God's people. As one commentator put it, we will not become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around in Shiloh. God is a God of renewal and renovation. He's working out redemption for those who've rebelled against him. He's putting in place someone who can mediate a relationship from man to God. I don't know where you are today. Wherever that is, I want you to know that however sinful your heart is, when God opens the walls, he doesn't close them up and say, I don't want anything to do with that. No. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work for our redemption. As long as there is a miraculous son who would walk among us and minister before the Lord as our priest, there is hope for all of us. So we see that God, in response to their sin, provides a faithful priest. 
But now something has to be done with these unfaithful priests. Eli won't do anything about it, so God jumps in and decides to do what is needed. Would you look with me at verses 27 through 30? And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Here we see God removing the rot and mold mold that is Eli and his household. We see here that an unknown man of God comes to Eli with a word of judgment from the Lord. God starts by saying, through the prophet, he's been so gracious to them. Look at verse 27. He teaches us that when Israel and the house of Aaron, from which Eli descends, were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, God revealed himself and he saved the people. But not only did he save them, verse 28 says, he chose Aaron from the tribe of Levi to start the Levitical priesthood. And these descendants of Aaron would serve as priests and represent the people of God by wearing the ephod before the Lord. And not only did he save them, he's given them the grace to serve him, but God promises to supply their needs and feed them from the sacrifices and the offerings. But Eli's sons have treated God's offering with contempt. And Eli has honored his sons above God by not putting an end to their rebellion. Therefore, we see in verse 30, God says that he will no longer honor this priestly line, but will honor those who honor him. God will go on to say in verse 34 that the sign of this judgment will be that Hophni and Phinehas shall die on the same day. He is ending this priestly line. For God honor, God's honor is for those who honor him above others. Now that temptation to honor others over God is not specific to Eli. That's the temptation before all of us, right? Who knows what was going on in Eli's mind? Maybe he wanted his sons to have a good job and have provisions, so he didn't want to remove them from being a priest. Maybe he thought that Eli's, maybe Eli thought his sons would eventually turn over a new leaf. Whatever it was, his eyes were not on the Lord and honoring him. And so Eli is condemned. The takeaway for us is that we do not want to be in a relationship that we honor the person more than we honor God. And that isn't always easy. There are relationships that we have where our connection to the person can lend towards changing the way we look at things. Some of you may have adult children like Eli who are walking in a way that is displeasing to the Lord. They're calling evil good and good evil. And for the sake of the relationship, 
you are tempted to affirm or overlook those sinful choices. Honor them above God by changing the way you think, believe, or act. And it's tough. I get it. But we do not want to walk in the sins of Eli. We want to honor God as Lord by making his voice in the scriptures the interpretive grid for processing and responding to the voices of others. We want God's voice to matter most. So coming back to 1 Samuel, we see that Eli's impending judgment is sure through this unknown prophet. But that's not all that the unknown prophet has to say. Look with me at verses 35 and 36. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house, Eli's that is, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. Here we see what is perhaps the climax of these two chapters. God is promising to provide a greater priest for the people. Now this prophecy has many layers and it's, it's helpful to see what's going on here. In the near fulfillment, we see Samuel being raised up by God to be a faithful priest in the midst of these unfaithful ones. Later in the book, we'll see that Samuel will go in and out before the king that is anointed in chapter 16. He is used by God to anoint King David, the great King David. And yet there's another layer to this promise because scripture speaks of a next fulfillment in the days of King Solomon, the son of King David. After Solomon is anointed king and he begins his reign, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 2 that Solomon banishes an unfaithful priest who's of the lineage of Eli. And he is banished to dwindle in stature and one day long for a loaf of bread. Solomon appoints Zadok to be the priest in his place. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 2, 27. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And yet God's word continues to speak. These are not the fullest expression nor the final fulfillment of what God is saying in 1 Samuel 3.35. These guys die, but we need an eternal priest. And this promise is to provide a forever priest that's not after the order of Aaron and Eli, and that is a one, that's one who will forever mediate a relationship between a holy God and humanity. What a pro- precious and great promise of the Lord. So what does God do when he sees the deep sin issues behind the walls of Israel? God reveals to us that he's willing to provide whatever it takes to bring sinful humanity back into right relationship with him. However, there's still one more issue to find behind the walls of Israel. Look with me at the first verse of chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We see here, that the author is telling us that not only is there unfaithful priests everywhere, 
But Israel is absent of prophets. We have our unknown man in chapter 2 prophesying, but we are told here that his words are the exception, not the rule. Because Israel has been so disobedient, God stopped sending prophets to them for a while. This, is, again, is a huge issue. Why? Because prophets are those who reveal God's word to humans. We sinful humans are bound for eternal destruction, so we need to hear from God if we are to be saved by God. So silence here is deadly. God getting quiet is like a person having a very serious conversation with someone else. It could be a boss with their employee. It could be a parent with their child. You don't get loud when you're very serious. No, you get quiet because you want every word to count. You want that person to know what you're saying. Well, in this case, God has quit speaking altogether. He's waiting for the right time to speak again. We're going to see that that right time is in the life and ministry of Samuel. Look with me at verses 2 through 7 of chapter 3. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Go lie down again. So he went and lay down again. The Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Verse 7, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. What we see in chapter 3 is that the Lord's silence ceases with Samuel. Now at first, Samuel doesn't realize who's talking to him. He thinks it's Eli, and so he goes and wakes him up in the middle of the night. Now, as a parent of young kids, this reminds me of all the times that our daughters have come to our bed and woke us up. Eli is having one of those really, really rough nights where his kids keep coming over and over again. <laughs> Verse 8 tells us, young Samuel wakes up Eli three times. And the first two times, Eli tells Samuel, he didn't call for him, go back to bed. However, Eli finally realizes the third time, probably because he's wide awake, that it's God who's calling out to Samuel. So Eli tells Samuel that if this happens again, address the Lord and say, hey, I'm listening. So starting in verse 10, we see that the Lord stands and he calls out again to Samuel for a fourth time. Now this time, Samuel is ready to hear from the Lord. Now God's word in this prophecy is essentially the same as what the unknown man had said in chapter 2, the unknown prophet. God tells Samuel in verse 13, as you can see, and I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and, they did, and he did not restrain them. Now, if you just think about this for a moment, we've got young Samuel, picture a young teenager, 13, this is the first time he's heard from the Lord. And as a prophet, your job is to hear the, the word of the Lord and to tell others the word of the Lord. That's a tough first assignment from God. As a newly appointed prophet, he's got to give this word to Eli. 
And so for Samuel's first assignment, he has a choice to either honor God or honor the man who's been a father and mentor to him. Well, let's look at how Samuel responds, starting in verse 15 through 4.1. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What do we see in Samuel's response? Despite being afraid to tell Eli the prophecy... Samuel chooses to honor God above Eli. Now, Eli's response here seems like a godly response. But with Eli's poor track record so far, I don't think that the author of 1 Samuel is intending us to look at Eli's response and commend it. If anything, Eli should be pleading for God's mercy. There's a similar scenario in 2 Kings chapter 20 where King Hezekiah is told by the prophet Isaiah that you're going to die. So get your household in order. But rather than being passively resigning to God's so-called will here, King Hezekiah pleads with the Lord for mercy. And guess what he finds? The favor of the Lord. That's what Eli should be doing right here. But that's not what we see Eli doing. And so here we are at the conclusion of our passage with a new prophet in town who's been provided and established by God, and this prophet isn't afraid to honor God above men. This is incredibly good news for the people of God. In a fractured relationship between God and humanity, God has raised up a faithful prophet who will listen to God and will faithfully speak on his behalf to people. We see by the end of the chapter that the word of the Lord is no longer rare in those days. God's judgment and grace is heard throughout all of Israel. From Dan in the far north to Beersheba in the south, God's silence ceases with this prophetic son. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. Israel has rejected and offended God. They've stopped their ears like Hophni and Phinehas. God has gone silent as they reject him but he doesn't stay silent forever. His silence may last through the night, but he speaks again in the morning through Samuel. Psalm 30, verse 5, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Praise the Lord. With the walls opened up and the deeper issues found at every inspection, we see in our passage that God's grace goes deeper still for Israel. There's nothing they can't do, that they do, that he can't solve in his priest and prophet. So what does that mean for us? I want to come back to the question I began with. 
If the walls of your heart were opened up, what issues would you find there? How deep do those issues go? I think that for many of us, when we begin to dig around in our hearts, there is a lot that we do not want to face. Much like a house needing remodeled or Israel in this time period, with every glance, we notice that something isn't the way it ought to be. And it's just flat out painful to see all the work that is needed. As we open up our hearts, we realize that there are many, many sins to be dealt with. And many of us may be tempted to respond like Eli or his worthless sons and not address the sin issues. We've all seen a demo day for a remodeling project. We know what it looks like to see everything gutted from the building. It's painful, I know, but we know that it's worth it for the renovation and renewal of the home. I want to encourage you to examine your heart and not turn away when you see the deep sin issues of it. Now, as you look at them, are you clear on the prescription you need? Remember that the way God works in the midst of the people of Israel is the same way he works in the lives of people today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What we need is a mediator. We cannot renew or transform our hearts. Because of our sin, we need someone to go to God on our behalf, and we need someone on God's side to speak his word to us. And praise be to God. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Brothers and sisters, friends here today, you need to know that though your sins are many, God's grace and mercy is more. And in Jesus Christ, we have a mediator that is greater than all our sin. Like Samuel, Christ was a miraculous son born of the Virgin Mary. Like Samuel, we see in Luke 2.52 that Christ walked among us and he grew in stature and favor with both the Lord and man. Like Samuel, Christ came to us some 400 years after God quit speaking and he told us God's word. Hebrews 1 tells us that in these last days, God has spoken through his son. Christ is the greater prophet who came speaking the word, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He prophesied of his priestly sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the, three, uh, resurrection from the dead three days later, and God let none of his words fall to the ground. He is that greater prophet. But not only that, like Samuel, Christ is the priest after a different priestly order than the Levitical one. We learn in Hebrews chapter 7 that Christ became a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not on the basis of bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. And because Christ lives forevermore, he can hold his priesthood permanently, making him a greater priest for you and for me which means consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see that Christ is the very mediator we need? If we were to answer Eli's question back in chapter 2, verse 25, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? For him? we can say with scriptural warrant and full conviction that Christ can intercede for us before the Lord. 
1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Praise God that no matter how deep your sin issue goes, his grace is deeper in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater priest and prophet. So how do we look to Christ, our priest and prophet? As our priest, we look to him for our salvation sacrifice. He alone can save us from our sins. As our prophet, we look to Christ for God's voice. He alone can speak God's word to us. I want to ask you this morning, are you looking to this mediating priest for your salvation, for the renovation and redemption of your soul? We've seen how this passage calls us to hope in God and to honor him above others, but that starts with looking to Christ as our priest for salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. If you do not identify as a believer in Christ today, I urge you to look to the one whom God has provided for your redemption. To turn away in rejection is to face the future that Eli's household did. Please don't go that route. Come to Christ and repentance and faith today. For those of you already looking to Christ for your salvation, I want to encourage you to keep looking to Christ as your priest and prophet. Every time you look at the issues of your heart, the sin issues that run deep, remember that God has provided a mediator for you. Because your mediator was judged and punished in your place on the cross, God will not try to punish your sins again on you. No. Because justice was rendered on Jesus, he is faithful and just now to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So keep your heart tender in the Lord by confessing sins and looking to Christ for your salvation and growth, lest you begin to treat the sin offering of the Lord on the cross with contempt like Eli's sons. We also want to look to Christ as our prophet to hear God's voice. The scripture calls us to take every thought captive to Christ. There is no perspective we have nor opinions we make that we do not filter through our faith in and obedience to Christ. Some of you were teenagers when the what would Jesus do bracelets came out. Those were cute, but... Honestly, they're kind of helpful. They're not far off from how we should process and think through life. The misery and suffering of Israel, and really this whole world today, shows us that, shows us what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. We don't want to do that. We want to know what would Jesus do and do that, looking to him and wanting to hear from him in the scriptures that we might know how to live before our God. I want to ask you, is his voice most important to you? When you're thinking through what to believe about God, how to process life, and you're looking for helpful voices, is the voice of God in Christ contained in the scriptures most important to you? Let us honor his voice above the voices of others. And when we think about God's voice in Christ, Let's not, def- let's not forget to tell others that God has spoken to his, through his son. In these last days, God speaks through his son, and he wants the word of judgment and grace to go beyond Dan and Beersheba to the very ends of the earth. 
Yes, judgment, for there is a day appointed for all to stand before the Lord, but also grace, for there will be grace and favor for those who repent and believe before that day. May we be a part of getting God's word to those in Connecticut and every corner of the earth. As I close, I know that there is more going on in your heart than meets the eye. As you look behind the walls of your heart, I want to plead with you. Don't close them up. Let them be open and deal with them. This is a word of hope for us from 1 Samuel 3 and 4. When you open up your heart, God's grace goes deeper. Oh, let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for a mediator that we can look to who can take away all our sin, who can speak your word to us. Father, as sinful people, we don't even know what we need until you tell us. God, your word tells us today that we need a mediator. So Father, help us to look, help us to, look to the one that you've provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I plead for myself and for those here. Give us the grace to not close up the walls, but to deal with sin issues in the presence of Jesus, who is our great high priest and prophet. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.